BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I was on the road last week speaking on campuses. Those of you who follow me closely know that this is nothing new for me. I do this all the time on college and law school campuses, but last week was slightly different. So we started last Tuesday in St. Louis, where I had an event at Washington University School of Law Tuesday evening talking about constitutional law and some jurisprudential debates. And I only found out after the event was over and the event went relatively smoothly. We had security. We made sure there were not going to be any shenanigans on the inside. But I found out after the event was over when I got dinner with the Federal Society students who hosted me that apparently what a coincidence, no doubt that at the exact same time, the event started at 530 p.m. local time. The law school mental health services department organized a collective group shout. Yes, that is exactly what it sounds like. A collective cathartic shout where everyone who wanted to would congregate in the quad outside of the building where I was speaking and just shout at the top of their lungs at the exact same time that our event began. Because truly nothing apparently these days says that you are ready for the character and fitness portion of your local state bar exam, then feeling the need to engage in a collective cathartic shout because Josh Hammer is speaking at your law school. Certainly, it is nice to know that the adults are in charge these days, but things really took a turn for the worse two nights later. So this was last Thursday. I had flown from St. Louis to Michigan. I was giving a talk last Thursday evening for YAF, for Young American, Young America's Foundation and Young Americans for Freedom, their local affiliate there at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. And this talk was going to be on the conflict in the Middle East. It was titled Israel's Righteous Fight Against Jihadism. That was the title of the talk. The title kind of gives it away. Now, the students had been flyering on campus that week. And as you might expect, every time that they put up a flyer advertising this event, the flyer was immediately torn down within an hour of it going up. You know, first thought right out of the gate, why are there not cameras right there to see who are the miscreants, who are the malfeasers, who are tearing down these posters in direct contravention of First Amendment free speech principles? University of Michigan, of course, one of America's oldest and most prestigious universities, private or public, in the country. So we really, really ought to know who is engaging in this sort of terrible, terrible behavior to literally tear these flyers down. They are so scared to simply have me come there and talk. So I get there for the event Thursday evening and 15, 20 minutes before the event, one of the students pulls me aside. I, I, we had a private security guard for me. We had metal detectors. I wasn't taking any chances there, given the, the climate on campuses these days, especially when it comes to this issue. Doubly so there in Michigan, given the large Arab population in some prominent Detroit suburbs like Dearborn and Hamtramck. We, we were not taking any chances from a security perspective. So 15, 20 minutes before the event starts, the, the student who is the YAF Michigan chapter leader pulls me aside and he goes, Mr. Hammer, I think there's 
probably if I had to estimate a 30, 35% chance or so that this thing gets shouted down. And I was like, okay, I mean, what are we basing this on? And he said, okay, you, you know, we're just scouting the room, looking at who's there. We don't recognize a lot of these people there. They look like they're coordinating something. So what do you want to do? And I said, well, look, you have every right. And this is true. You have every right to go to an event and to silently protest. You can stand there in the back of the room. You can hold up signs. You can do anything like that if you want to. Here's the key part. You are not allowed to shout someone down. You are not allowed to engage in a heckler's veto. That is outside of the confines of First Amendment protected activity. It goes against every university's policy that I am aware of when it comes to speech, whether it is a righteous First Amendment upholding school or even less than that. Every university policy does not condone the heckler's veto. In some instances, it is a prosecutable offense. You are simply not allowed to do this, let alone on a public university where the First Amendment of the Constitution reigns supreme with its guarantee for, for free speech. So I start my talk, and within the first 60 to 90 seconds, probably 20 to 25 students stand up out of their seats and put their hands in the air. And they're all wearing these stickers on their shirts with names and the photos are of those in Gaza who apparently have been killed during the conflict. Now, just this audience knows this, but it is worth reiterating here briefly that every one of these deaths over the past six weeks is attributable under well-established principles of international law, not to Israel, not to the IDF, but to Hamas because Hamas is the organization that cynically bombs their own roadways to keep their own people trapped inside Gaza, that launches rockets from mosques, UNRWA schools, United Nations schools, all sorts of other civilian infrastructure. As a matter of international law and basic morality, this is not complicated. Nonetheless, these students all stand up. And, you know, my first thought was, okay, if this is as bad as it's going to get, then I can deal with this. So I continued on talking there and... You know, it was less than five minutes later. So we're talking here six, seven, eight minutes at the most into the speech, probably even less than that. They start audibly and obnoxiously coughing every time that I start to open my mouth. So if I were to say, in 1948, you know, at that time, they would just be like, (coughs) and, you know, again, my first thought was, okay, is this plausible deniability on their end where they can just try to appeal to university administrators or the campus police, both of whom are currently on hand, to watch this whole event unfold. Was this plausible deniability that they could somehow say, oh, you know, we were just coughing. It just so happened that we were coughing at the exact same time. But this went on for a few minutes, and I said into the microphone, I at this point, I said, as a reminder, you have every right to silently protest. You have every right to ask any question during the Q&A session that you want. You do not have a right to shout down or drown out my words. Ironically, they were drowning out those words as I was talking. Just a few minutes later, those coughs turned into shouts. Remember their names. Free Palestine. From the river to the sea. All the usual garbage that anyone who has been paying attention to this over the past six weeks by now probably would be accustomed to. So at this point, 
At this point, it became fairly obvious that someone had to do something. But the student before the event had warned me that university administrators and police were infamously and well known to be slow, to be lethargic in enforcing the university's own policies. So sure enough, they did absolutely nothing for a solid at least five or six minutes where I kept my composure, kept on talking, but I'm sure that everyone who was not in the first row there probably could not hear me. Finally, a university administrator gets up to the podium and reminds the students, just simply reminds them of the university policy. Ironically, again, you couldn't hear him because he was himself being shouted out and drowned out by the students there. Another five to 10 minutes later, they start slowly making their way out of the classroom. They're still chanting and then they finally get outside and they're banging on the walls outside like absolute animals, like barbarians in in a jail cell or animals at the zoo. This whole process takes about 25 to 30 minutes. Now, thankfully, again, I kept my composure. I was able to finish the speech. I am not the victim here. I am not personally the victim here. This is terrible that this happened. An absolute shame on the University of Michigan for failing to uphold the First Amendment. Absolute shame on the University of Michigan for failing to uphold their own university code of conduct when it comes to how students and protesters ought to behave at events like this. But the people there that I was most sad for were those who wanted to hear the event. Both those in Ann Arbor at the University of Michigan and those who drove for a long time. There were a lot of students who drove down from the Michigan State YAF chapter there in East Lansing, probably, I mean, easily over an hour, up to possibly an hour and a half, depending on the traffic from East East Lansing down to Ann Arbor. Felt terrible for them. They were mostly sitting in the first row there. They couldn't hear a damn thing until the protesters finally, finally made their way out of there. But more to the point... What does it say about the state of administration and campus police that these actors who were there, the representative of university who was in control of that particular building, the Michigan League Club and the campus police, that they essentially failed to enforce their own university policy for essentially a half hour, give or take 25, 30 minutes. And at the end, they didn't even necessarily hold a proverbial gun to these students' head. They essentially walked out on their own accord. There is only one way that this sort of neo-Marxist, mini-Robespierre behavior in these madrasas of wokeness that we now call American university campuses, there's only one way that this ends. That is with strict, severe, and swift accountability. Now, The university administration has not reached out to me. I have no idea what they're going to do. It would be absolutely shameful if the students and the administrators and campus police get off here scot-free because the same thing is simply going to happen all over again. I think back to April 2019. I was at my own law school alma mater, the University of Chicago Law School. And my friend, Eugene Kantarovich, who is a brilliant lawyer, international scholar, talks a lot about Israel, Gaza, the law of occupation, and how it does not apply to this conflict. He talks about all of that quite brilliantly. And he came to the law school and he was talking about BDS, boycott, divestment, and sanction resolutions, anti-Israel, anti-Semitic resolutions at the state level. And the same thing happened. There were protesters in the back who were shouting him out. 
Now, much like what I experienced in Ann Arbor last Thursday, the University of Chicago campus police, again, I was there personally, physically present to witness this. They also had a lackluster response. They did not come for a solid 20, 25 minutes. But here's the key part. The ringleader who orchestrated that whole mini jihad against Eugene Kantarovich there at the University of Chicago Law School in April 2019, ultimately got effectively expelled from the University of Chicago. If I recall the exact details, he was kicked out for the remainder of the school year and told that he could not reapply for another two years. That is de facto expulsion. That is the only way that situations like this can be handled. So I am not exactly waiting on pins and needles here to see what might happen there at the University of Michigan. But in a just world, which increasingly it seems we don't necessarily live in, that is the model that the university administrators, the president, whoever is currently mulling this over, if anyone is indeed mulling it over, that is the model to follow. But speaking of this absolutely outrageous conduct, this anti-American, anti-free speech, anti-constitutional conduct that goes against our values, goes against our tradition, goes against our heritage. You know, I was reminded of this actually on Sunday. I attended a, a, a very large and very impressive pro-Israel rally here in South Florida where I live on Sunday. And it, it was a really fun event. There's a, there's a group here called Rolling Thunder, which is essentially a, a, a group of Israeli, Israeli Americans and perhaps some others, both Jewish and non-Jewish, who tag along, who form these extraordinarily elaborate motorcades of cars, motorcycles, trucks, just totally decked out, decorated with the flags, the posters, the stickers, you name it. And this was a rally for Israel for the IDF, for the forces of civilization fighting against barbarism, and more to the point, to return the hostages. Recall, of course, that there are well over 200 hostages currently being held in the subterranean terror tunnels underneath Gaza. The thing that stood out to me about this particular rally that I attended, where I had a great time, is just how patriotic the whole thing was. We sang Hatikva, the Israeli national anthem, and we also sang the Star Spangled Banner, the American national anthem. We saluted the law enforcement, the police who were there. We gave them a big line of applause, even a standing ovation. We were proud to have such a robust law enforcement presence there to protect us. And on a more visceral and obvious note, anyone who was looking at this crowd would have noticed there were just as many American flags present as Israeli flags. Oftentimes, they were together. You've probably seen that flag. It's hard for me to describe without kind of showing you a photo, but you could probably th- imagine that flag if you can immediately think of it. That is kind of half American flag, the stars and stripes, and then half the Israeli flag, the Magen David. That was ubiquitous. That flag was everywhere. There were American flags everywhere. The whole thing just, just was inundated. It was imbued with a deep American patriotism. And, you know, contrast that with this behavior from the other side of this conflict, the pro-Palestinian, pro-Hamas side. The side that is anti-Western civilization to its core. These same people that seek the destruction of the state of Israel, whether it is Hamas, whether it is the, the Black Lives Matter movement of 2020, 
They are expressly in their charters equally committed to the destruction, not merely of Israel, but to the United States of America. It is no accident that in Tehran, they chant not just death to Israel, but death to America. Not just death to what they call the little Satan of Israel, but to the big Satan of the United States of America. These two concepts go hand in hand. If you believe in hierarchies of oppression, of oppressors versus oppressed, if you believe in so-called decolonialism, decolonization, then you are going to oppose the state of Israel just as much as you oppose the United States. And sure enough, just last week in Washington, D.C., and in some state capitals like Sacramento and Albany throughout the country, we saw these pro-Hamas thugs assaulting police officers, just engaging in both physical and proverbial assault on American law enforcement. Again, this is not an accident. There is the starkest moral values-based dichotomy possible when it comes to this conflict. It also just so happens that the American national interest, even holding aside any kind of moral considerations whatsoever, the most hard-headed realist assessment of the conflict whatsoever, should redound entirely and emphatically in favor of robust, unequivocal support for Israel. But on top of the morally detached realist perspective, the moral dichotomy here could not possibly be starker. I was reminded of that on Sunday at this rally in South Florida, seeing all the American flags. And that concept of this incredibly stark moral dichotomy takes me to another topic that I spoke about at great length a little over a year ago on this show, and it is worth talking about just a little bit more here in this bonus episode. And that is the plight of Candace Owens of The Daily Wire. I was among the most outspoken, vocal, and harshest critics of Candace Owens over a year ago now, in October 2022, when she came out as probably the single most public conservative-leaning supporter of Kanye West when Kanye West went full Hitler, went full Mein Kampf, went full Death Con 3 or 5, whatever he said about the Jews. And Candace had emerged at that time. She and Kanye had a pre-existing friendship. She emerged at that time as an unequivocal booster of Kanye West when the dude was literally spouting Hitlerite Nazi garbage, was palling around with Nick Fuentes, arguably the single most infamous neo-Nazi in Gen Z, millennial, whatever his generation is. We were very harsh on this show on Candace Owens. Unfortunately, she has been at it again. Her conduct over the past six weeks has, in the words of her colleague at the Daily Wire, Ben Shapiro, been disgraceful. Those are accurate words. Ben is entirely right. Candace has not merely equivocated, not merely painted Israel and the genocidal Islamist jihadist death cult Hamas in absurdly morally equivalent terms. She has essentially accused Israel of genocide. Yes, literally genocide. Her outrageous 
ignorance of anything remotely resembling facts on this conflict led her to spout such garbage as saying that the Muslim quarter of Jerusalem is where all the Muslims live. Therefore, Israel is analogous to the Jim Crow South. Folks, I don't have words to describe this level of ignorance. The Muslim quarter, the Jewish quarter, the Christian quarter, and the Armenian quarter exist in the old city of Jerusalem for purely historical reasons. There are Muslims all throughout Israel. News to Candace Owens, if you don't know what the hell you are talking about on a particular topic, either read up, read a damn book, or just shut the hell up. Those are basically the two viable options there. But this has gotten ugly over there and you know it's not really necessarily my my favorite topic to to wade into the inner workings of 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 other companies i i regret some of the things that i said on this front over a year ago i definitely do not regret criticizing candace owens but some of the other commentary that went along with that but this has become such a hot topic is this current tension between Candace Owens and and her colleague, my former boss at the Daily Wire, Ben Shapiro, that it must be discussed at least briefly. And look, there there is a right and, and a wrong side when it comes to Israel and Hamas. You just heard it from me. Israel is right. Hamas is wrong. Not every conflict in the world has this level of stark moral dichotomy. I, for one, have been a skeptic of U.S. engagement in the Donbass and eastern Ukraine on very much these grounds. But Israel and Hamas absolutely unequivocally fits the World War II-era paradigm of absolutist all-out good versus absolutist all-out evil. By the same token... If you are looking at the feud over there at the Daily Wire between Ben Shapiro and Candace Owens, and if you don't see that exact same stark moral dichotomy between Ben, who is so clearly and obviously correct, who spoke admirably on this topic when I saw him here in South Florida, Sunday evening at the Boca Raton Synagogue, Ben had a, had a great event with the rabbi there talking about this. If you don't see the starkest dichotomy possible between the way that my former boss, Ben Shapiro, speaks on this topic versus the way that Candace Owens, an absolute ignoramus par excellence, and the way that she speaks on this with her talk about Israel committing genocide, Yes, genocide would be the most incompetent genocide in the history of genocides, by the way. The Palestinian Arab population in Gaza has absolutely exploded, has grown exponentially over the past few decades. That compared to this talk about, oh, it's the Jim Crow South because of the Muslim quarter. Are you kidding me? Compared to someone who had Norman Finkelstein on her show this past Friday. Norman Finkelstein, one of the three most noxious Jew haters who himself is technically Jewish in the world, literally one of the three most infamous self-hating Jews I can think of, along with Peter Beinart and Max Blumenthal. Candace had Norman Finkelstein on to talk about what she calls Israel and Palestine, notwithstanding that there is no such thing as Palestine. 
It is somewhere below Tatooine and Narnia when I think of fictional places that I care for. To somehow compare, or to even think to compare, what, what is happening there at the Daily Wire between what Ben is saying and what Candace is saying. These are not equivalent human beings. These are not equivalent people. These are not equivalent stances. Just as Israel is emphatically in the right and Hamas is emphatically in the wrong, so too in this internecine squabble there over at the Daily Wire is Ben Shapiro emphatically in the right, is doing God's work with his commentary on this conflict, and Candace Owens is emphatically and unambiguously in the wrong. She has proven herself to be nothing short of an absolute disgrace. The David Horowitz Freedom Center, which helped give Candace her start, formally announced that they were cutting all remaining ties and letting her go. It was a brilliant statement they put out this past Sunday evening. It is not my business to tell other companies, let alone a former employer of mine, how to run their own business. But I know that I personally am rooting for swift justice and ideally the downfall of Candace Owens.